Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Kevin Rudd, absolute privilege, former Prime Minister of Australia and certified legend. So, uh, Kevin Rudd was a Prime Minister of Australia, firstly, from 2006 to 2010. He actually won uh, for the opposition. It was the first time the Labor Party had won back after a long stretch of the Liberal Party in power with John Howard. Uh, and then he, uh, through some... Uh, an interesting period of Australian politics. He was not the leader for a while, and then he came back a couple of years later. So he was, uh, for the second time, Prime Minister uh, for a few months in 2013 before the 2013 election. So he's the author of a few books, Kevin Rudd, The PM Years, and Kevin Rudd, Not for the Faint-Hearted. What we cover in this episode, first of all, is how and why a lot of young people are really disengaged with politics. This is me and you, our show here. We're pretty hopeless when it comes Mm. to uh, being engaged in politics. We talk about his life as a politician and some of his thoughts about the rising global superpower of China relative to the US and uh, obviously a big topic in, in the news at the moment with the trade wars. And then also we inject a little bit of conspiracy into the conversation and you know he's one of the he was one of the top dogs of the world and uh, surely he knew a lot of the things yeah. out going on, right? He didn't give us much, but it's always good to ask someone who knew a bit of shit. I reckon he, he gave us a <laughs> wink, I think. Yeah, he gave us a wink <laughs> and played a piano. And then listen to the end because uh, he, he whips a few, tr- few tunes on the piano. Yeah. It was a fascinating conversation with a highly intelligent man who came from a, a hell of a lot of power and it's, uh, it was fascinating to just talk about the future and what everybody can do to create a better future. He's a great man, Kevin Rudd. Well, thank you, Jonesy, and thank you for having me on the podcast here with Mr. Ashto. Um, <laughs> Toe fetish, Ashto. <laughs> yeah, it's got big feet. Yeah. Size 15s. It's impressive. <laughs> Basketball or what? Uh, footy, but not very good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How do I get into politics? Um, well, uh, unlike the current Prime Minister, I don't think the Lord put me there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in fact, the Lord had a lot to do with it. He would have probably stopped me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and I say that as a church-going Anglo-Catholic. Um, I think um, as a kid growing up in rural Australia, I worked out pretty soon that I had a limited interest in a future in animal husbandry. Um, uh, my father asked me the big question as a kid, um, berry, dairy or beef, Kev? <laughs> and, uh, and then I discovered as an 11-year-old a deep interest in international relations. Mm. Um, and I think what happened was because I got interested in a kid in China, drifted off to university, started studying Chinese at the ANU, uh, and then because you're in Canberra, there is, uh, you're, you're physically very close to the you know, political establishment. And I knew nothing about politics, nothing about diplomacy. So I think it was a gradual process. Yeah. Um, but sooner or later you discover that you're a person who's, in, who's motivated by public policy, which is me. And then for me, the long discussion I had with Therese, my wife, is that, is that best done as a public servant uh, or through direct political involvement? And so by the time I got to the end of my 20s, early 30s, I thought, uh, no, bugger that. <clears throat> Might as well go for the, um, the full Monty. Uh, and so um, off I went, slowly sliding down the food chain of life into elected office. <laughs> I once had a respectable career as a diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. I, f- I feel like... Uh there's, in terms of politics, uh, I feel like there's a small group of people who are extremely uh, interested and engaged and invested in, in politics, 
But I've also found that a lot of young people, I'll put myself in that category, who are, are less interested, less engaged, less enthusiastic. Uh, is that a, uh, you know, is that just forever, that's how everyone is, every generation, or is there something about today that people are getting disengaged? I don't think um, your generation, um, Ashto, um, uh, is any less engaged than um, people as geriatric as myself. Um, and I haven't been around for much to observe previous generations. Um, I think these things ebb and flow. What I notice more with, say, my kids' generation, and um, my youngest son is now 24 going on 14, um, <laughs> and a bit like you two guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, is there's more of a dystopia about uh, this generation, driven in part by, I think, despair about the planet and climate, driven in part by what does it matter in terms of politics, which side you vote for, it's all the same. <clears throat> and so what I sense is not a level of, shall I say, declining interest. I sense a rising sense of despair on the part of younger folks. Uh, and that worries me, not just as um, someone who's been engaged in public policy all my life, just worries me for the future. Mm. Yeah, I'd put myself in that category. Like I see, you see some of the things going on in the world, like climate change and artificial intelligence coming through and automation of jobs. And it seems like the world's getting so, so complex moving forward. And, you know, for me, I would see some of the politicians and you could just get the feeling that the complexity of the world isn't really potentially being spoken about in those small circles just because what gets discussed in the, the two-minute interviews that they have on the, the news and so forth is it's like, I don't know, I almost think it's like straightening deck chairs on the, the Titanic almost, mm. using that as the analogy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a generous analogy uh, <laughs> compared with a lot of what goes on. I think um, the questions of big public policy – and I think for me there are three big global ones. Climate change is one, and our ability to act nationally and globally to keep temperature increases within two degrees centigrade by uh, century's end. Uh, two, the phenomenon of um, high technology and artificial intelligence in particular and the labour displacement effects it's going to have and the radical impacts on people's lifestyles as well as the upside in terms of drugs uh, that we've yet to discover, mm. not recreational drugs in <laughs> the sense that interest Ashto. <laughs> I know but, you have to buy and pay as well. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I pack my bong. That, that was a joke. <laughs> if anyone from the AFP is listening. But the third one of, you know, for me is also China's rise and the assumptions we've had about continued classical dominance of the West in, let's call it, international relations for the last 250 years. Uh, what I mean by that is the Anglo-West is actually sliding out the door. So for me, all these big questions actually have answers, and they take a lot of intellectual effort, they take a lot of research, but the answers are there. And they are doable in public policy terms. Uh, it's frankly meshing the answers with the rolling shit of politics, yeah. which is really hard. And it's a brave woman or man who wants to see their personal lives shredded into little pieces before them, who enters the political public space in the first place 
and many of them do with, you know, great aspirations for the country and for the world. Uh, but then to see what the process of politics does within parties and between parties and the, and the nature of, uh, let's call it the political media in this country, particularly uh, Murdoch, the beast that is Murdoch, um, in slowly eviscerating your ability to act effectively in politics. Um, and so it takes uh, the steeliest of temperaments to A, keep your policy mind in order, that is why you're there, B, manage the day-to-day -day, uh, blood sport that is politics, while C, then using executive office as effectively as you can to bring about change with the time that you're given. Now, I tried to do that um, and, uh, and achieve some things, but it's really hard. The easier game to play is just what I describe as, you know, Abbotland, uh, which is um, just sort of bouncing along, being there, opposing everything that moves and sustaining incumbency on the basis of the politics of rolling, you know, populist opposition to anything which will keep you in office, but frankly, never moving the dial on the big policy questions which matter for the country. Yeah, that's that, a phenomenal answer. Absolutely. Touched on, touched on everything that we were... We're hoping to, to talk about Good, we can go down the, <laughs> <go down> the <laughs> pub and get pissed now. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's so interesting, I think, like the, the balance of effectiveness and politics and getting things done. There's probably like everyone in a lot of organisations need to play the game of, of some description and also uh, which goes against getting things done as well. So Yeah. Well, it can do that. I mean, what often – what can happen – is that uh, on the policy front, you can often be overcome by what I describe as the permanent purity of eternal opposition, uh, which is you know, a lot of where the Green Party, for example, exists, or the left of the Labor Party, um, uh, parts of the left of the Labor Party, which is um, uh, we are concerned about the purity of our sentiment. Uh, we will never compromise on anything because we believe that this is the only way to go. Screw the rest of you. Um, and as the politics of protest goes, that's fine. It doesn't actually change the dial on law and action. And then you got, you know, the other mob who are just, uh, as it were, uh, either natural um, practitioners or scientific practitioners of the politics of rolling deception. Be angry at that person, hate that group, uh, feel my anger with you and vote for me again. Peter Dutton, for example. Um, that's kind of how he lives and works. But the danger with both those extremes is it actually doesn't turn the policy dial. What's required is the politics and the policy of what I describe as the radical reforming centre of the Australian political landscape. And frankly, it's a lonely place to be, having occupied mm. it for a while. I think everyone uh, in their job to some degree has to... They've got a lot of people they need to keep happy, that their boss their colleagues, their people below them, and then any external people, customers as well. I think in politics it sounds you like... You didn't mention your wife. <laughs> of course. Your of partner, course as well. your kids. 100%. Cat, dog. And I, I feel like the, uh, the life of a politician is that on steroids because you've got your people within your party, your colleagues, and then you've got the opposition who are doing the exact opposite. And as you say, you've got the media, and then, of course, the general public needs to trust you, believe in you, like you as well. How do you sort of juggle all of those different people who all expect different things of you? 
Well, in my case, demonstrably unsuccessful because <laughs> uh, I'm not there anymore. Um, but it's a challenge. I mean, I was in the parliament for 15 years and prior to that I worked closely in Queensland as <clears throat> the um, Premier's Chief of Staff and then Director General of the Cabinet Office for um, a period. So I would have had 20 years in fairly direct political life at reasonably senior levels. So what I'd say to your listeners is have some compassion and understanding for people who seek to do that, assuming that they enter the space with uh, well-formed public policy uh, aspirations uh, for the community, the country and the planet. Because it's hard. As a member of parliament, you've got your responsibilities as a local representative. You're effectively the pastor of last resort in your local community. And people wander into your door with either a dead cat, a live dog, uh, through to uh, people who have lost their marbles wanting to fly to the moon next Thursday and everything in between. And there are a whole bunch of those people, thousands of them, whose lives I have and my staff have helped in a material way. And it's a silent part of a member of parliament's life. Then you're a legislator in the parliament. Then you may have a position in the executive, either in the shadow ministry or the ministry. Uh, then also you're a media performer in seeking to explain your uh, policy view uh, to the rest of the country. Uh, and apart from all above, you also have to be a member of that beast called the Labour Party um, or your political party. And then, being a human being, your family and your friendships. So it's no surprise why a number of these people end up going batshit crazy. Um, <clears throat> that's a technical term. <laughs> I know you don't talk that way down here in Melbourne because no. <laughs> you're posh down here. But, um, but I think that's why a number of people just kind of lose it because it's hard. Um, um, and there's only 24 hours in the day. Uh, but the challenge for every generation of people aspiring to political office is still to bring together uh, a policy vision for the country on top of that, um, an understanding of how to bring about effective political change to give those policies effect for the long term, um, while at the same time remaining anchored in humanising human relationships. Mm. Otherwise, you end up as just a complete arsehole. Yeah. Mm. I think that's something you did did well. In you mean ending up as saying, an asshole? <laughs> no, no. I just in thought I'd staying, correct you at that point. <laughs> in terms of staying human, in terms of uh, mm, I watched a, a YouTube uh, clip last night called Kevin Rudd fails, but I saw you were you know playing cricket and you, it was a very nice cut shot. You know, a down ball tournament with some uh, some kids at, in year twelve, and then there was singing in choirs and you know doing things with I guess the, the everyday. Have you ever seen my my chin ups? Yeah, and the chin ups as well. That was, that was, that was a good that was one. Another How big one I didn't want to mention. How many did you get? Oh, I think um, six or seven no, eventually. No, yeah? no, that's great. Oh, zero, zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was you bad. Missed the bar. Oh, <laughs> it was, you missed the bar. It, it was it was seriously bad. Yeah, probably. One of my more, one of my many humiliating moments <laughs> in Australian public life. Yeah, but how, how did you juggle the, uh, you know, being not not likable, but being you know one of us, uh, but also getting look, you know, done. I'm just look, I'm a kid who grew up on a farm in rural Queensland, and uh, many people led by the Murdoch media uh, used to run this attack of, um, you know, who is the real Kevin Rudd, this guy who comes out with these strange Australianisms, like fair shake of the sauce bottle. <clears throat> Um, and at the same time speaks Chinese and has a deep interest in B Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the theology of personal and collective uh, liberation. But you know something? All those things are quite naturally me 
and that's just the truth of it. <clears throat> when I'm in rural Queensland, that's the way in which I speak because that's how I grew up. Um, I have a deep fascination with the world of ideas and philosophy and religion uh, and public policy and where all these, how these things hang together. And so I'm reasonably illiterate in those domains and I've had a lifetime fascination with China. So I speak Mandarin. And I read Mandarin. Um, but, you know, you can be all those things at once and not just have to turn off various parts of who you are to appease some Murdoch media notion uh, that uh, you can only fit into that box over there. Um, so, um, so the key to it all is just being authentically who you are and, and not trying to bullshit. I mean, my view about the Australian public, and I've always said this to anyone seeking to be elected to public office, is the Australian public can spot a fraud at 50 paces. They may not understand everything you're talking about, but they do watch your eyeballs and they know whether your eyeballs are lying or not. And I don't think a lot of people in political life have worked that out. The question is being authentically you, even if it fundamentally violates, violates the cookie cutter uh, of Australian political life. Mm. You've, uh, you've mentioned Murdoch a few times. What is the relationship between media and some political parties? Is it conscious trying to play to the irrationality of the, the wider uh, populace uh, consciously to make to swing votes in a certain way or is it something that politicians don't deliberately play into? I think those of us who are in political life who are seeking to advance our policy agendas for our parties and for government are consciously engaged deliberately uh, in maximising the coverage of their positions through the Australian media, whether it's traditional media or whether it's social media. That's natural and that's normal. And I certainly make no apology whatsoever for trying to do my best in maximising the coverage of what I believed in through the Australian media. But what you do run into uh, are monstrous media organisations like uh, the Murdoch Media, who are in fact operating in effect, as a political party. They're just coalition partners of um, the Liberal and National Party. That's how they operate. They constantly uh, uh, back their political cause. When was the last time any of you saw in the pages of any Murdoch newspaper any critical reflection on John Howard? Hmm. Not sure. <laughs> when did you last see one on me? Probably yeah. yesterday. <laughs> okay. It's kind of like, and I've been out of office five years, for God's sake. And um, because the agenda with those guys is the rolling delegitimization of anyone who represents a political and ideological threat to the Murdoch worldview, which is highly conservative, deeply protective of his narrow definition of free markets. Um, utterly opposed to the role of the state in the provision of public infrastructure like high-speed broadband for commercial reasons um, and always uh, running through his newspapers a semi-racist agenda about foreigners and Muslims in particular. Um, and, and when you've got that operation running ostensibly as a media organisation but owning 70% of the Australian uh, print circulation... Um, and in the case of the last federal election in Australia in 2019, running a 95% pro-government agenda, pro-Morrison agenda. I mean, frankly, the flickering flame of the Australian democracy starts to uh, peter out at that point, which is why 
we must have in this country a royal commission into the future of media ownership. Mm-hmm. I recently watched on Netflix the Cambridge Analytica and it takes what you're talking about now to a whole nother level where you know, the whole idea of bringing in fake news just to swing the swing voters, I guess. Well, very much the fake news agenda, which has been taken up uh, by, let's call the number of social media uh, practitioners. I think fake news really had its origins in the way in which uh, Murdoch in Australia and in the United States through Fox Television and through uh, papers like the New York Post, which he owns, and in Britain through Sun and News of the World, um, frankly, got used to the idea they could just make a story up. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then when you challenged it, their method of operation was, you've got the guts, the stupidity to think you can challenge us and get away with it. Wait for tomorrow, comrade. We're just going to rip your head off again and again and again until you say sorry or decide to shut up. I once challenged a News Limited editor as to why they had massacred somebody. I always remember the response, because we can. <laughs> <laughs> had nothing to do with what they'd done. Yeah. It's because we can, to remind them who really ran the country yeah. and where the Murdoch editors come into play in, uh, in anticipating and sometimes over-anticipating uh, Murdoch Senior and Murdoch Junior's personal political agenda uh, is to skew their news coverage to such an extent that you no longer separate news uh, reporting from editorial opinion. It's just one big conservative broadsheet. Mm-hmm. I think uh, if there's any conspiracy theorists, they'll be licking their lips. And not- <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, uh, Everyone's got that mate at a, a barbecue who is a conspiracy theorist. I've got a mate, his name's Vaj. You know, they're always saying they're... G'day, Vaj. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're saying they faked the moon landing, they... Like uh, the Murdoch Papers or 9-11 or uh, the Illuminati. And you listen, you watch a bit of conspiracy theory every now yeah, and then, Asha. I don't mind it. It's come but up on the show a few times. Whenever they're saying they, they're referring to, I guess, the political leaders of the world. And so I guess at one stage, they were when they were saying they, they were referring to yourself when you were the Prime Minister of Australia. So can you categorically rule out or bit of, <laughs> put a bit of fuel on the fire of any conspiracy theories that are out there? considering you were in the position to, <laughs> to understand. I don't you want know. to deny the existence of the Illuminati because I don't want to upset my fellow members. Oops. Oh, my God, I've let it out. I've let it slip. The, um, um, I think the difference between your standard conspiracy theories, of which there's always zillions uh, banging around the place, is is that they now, of course, received uh, much greater ventilation because of the unconstrained... Um, editorials, if you like, of social media, plus they can attract uh, mass followings quite rapidly without having to fork out and buy a newspaper or something like that. Um, But uh, what I have done is deliberately name an institution. It's called the Murdoch Media Empire, otherwise called the Murdoch Party. And when I say, have you looked at their balanced coverage as required under the Australian Press Council guidelines for the 2019 election. And does anyone disagree with the proposition that it was 95% pro-Liberal National Party uh, and anti-Labor? No one actually disagrees with that. But you know what the big difference is? People don't have the guts to mount a campaign against it in Australia because as soon as you take on the Murdoch beast in this country, they come after you. 
academics, universities, think tanks, individual politicians, people like me, um, because they want to remind everybody who ultimately has the power and influence within this country. Yeah, yeah love it. Another thing you, you were mentioning towards the start is about <clears throat> the rising economies in Asia and uh, developing countries in, in general. We've come across that idea in, in a few books and sometimes they've got the, op- the complete opposite opinion. So one book, Factfulness by Hans Rosling, and I'm assuming this is similar to, to your opinion, that in 2050 there's going to be 5 billion people. Is he in the Illuminati? <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't uh, know. <laughs> I, think, oh, I think he passed away. So. Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely is in the Illuminati. They got him. <laughs> yeah. they got him. Yeah. Maybe, he's, maybe he's alive with you. No, yeah. I wouldn't say. Gonski. Gonski. <laughs> Gonski. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be 5 billion people over in Asia and if only a small slice of that is enters the middle class and there's going to be a huge force in Asia. The other opinion is by a guy called Yuval Noah Harari who wrote the book Homo Deus and he says in the future there's going to be a small highly trained elite who are going to be uh, the big powerhouses in industries. He uses war as an example. So there would have been a time when there was 10,000 soldiers doing all the work. Now you just have a few SAS drone operators. So as technology increases, there's going to be more and more irrelevancy in the workforce. So from his point of view, the developed countries is going to have all the power in the future because they've got all the data right now and they're going to be in the best position. So in terms of those two viewpoints, can you explain where, where you sit and maybe address the opposing one as well? Well, Jonesy, um, thank you for the two exposition of the two alternatives. I think on the first, which is, let's call it, uh, a rising middle class of historical proportions uh, in Asia, but frankly also followed by rising middle class in Africa, um, um, and then... Uh, Latin America. Uh, it's a reality. For example, in China, um, population 1.4 billion, those who would now uh, be classified as low to middle income would probably be in the vicinity of seven to 800 million, uh, rising to about a billion. And of those who, are, who have per capita income of 20, 30, 40,000 uh, US dollars a year, you're starting to look at several hundred million Chinese. This is a vast change over the last 40 years. You begin to see the slow uh, emergence of a similar phenomenon in India um, and, uh, and the emergence of something similar in parts but not many parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, Africa, this continent of a billion, but frankly in a century's time, um, several billion, um, is the uh, story waiting to be told. So... All these transformations will in fact give rise to massive new middle class markets and therefore rising income levels and hence our challenge with climate change is that to deal with that in an energy energy or carbon neutral fashion uh, is one of the central challenges of our time. It's doable. Now all that's happening but then flipping over to thesis two which is the Illuminati on speed, (laughs) uh, Homo Deus, etc. Um, sounds like Mozart's brother, doesn't it? The, um, this is Emma and this is Homo. And, uh, the, uh, anyway, Homo Deus, uh, 
There is uh, a lot of uh, logic to the argument, um, and it, it uh, centres around the core proposition of how is uh, production in the economy and how is security between states uh, managed in the future and by whom and deploying what uh, means and or technologies. Um, and the reality is that production processes uh, from physical goods to the services that we need um, and who can actually make shoes like that, yeah. you know, that big <laughs> and still make a quid out of it. I mean, you've got to do it with 3D printing, I think, because no one else would do it. <laughs> I'm talking about ash toad. <laughs> the, um, the bottom line is uh, where artificial intelligence is going uh, across the board is the assembling of big data using machine learning to draw algorithmic conclusions from big data and then allying that immediately with tailored manufacturing processes and also logistical systems, uh, which all of which will produce ginormous shoes, um, uh, but probably at a lower price. Um, and then on the way through, with massive labour displacement at each stage of that process, uh, mass uh, unemployment. So I can see that happening as well. But it won't just be in so-called the developed world because the country with the greatest head start on AI is, in fact, China. Mm. Why? Massive amounts of data, huge population, negligible regulatory restraints in terms of how, who, how you can use that data. Um, a whole bunch of machine learning already underway through their own indigenous AI industry, quite apart from what is um, taken by fair means or foul from the rest of the world. And with untold applications both in economic production processes but also in the next revolution in military affairs through robotic warfare. Um, and that is just getting underway. And the big public policy question for me is if we do not at the same time create sustainable lifestyles uh, for everyone who is displaced, then you are looking at the ultimate proof of the Marxist critique of capitalism, which is that capitalism will become self-cannibalizing um, because it fails uh, ultimately to generate full employment. It does, in fact, generate mass unemployment. And unless you socially intervene through social democratic parties like the Australian Labor Party to ensure that there is an adequate safety net, then you are looking at violent revolution. Mm. Wow, that's uh, mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. So China wins in both yeah. scenarios, which is <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, the AI fight between China and the United States has just begun. Not all the marbles mm. are in uh, China's uh, box at the moment. The Americans still have quite a number. Um, and there are certain regulatory changes underway in the United States to make it easier to access large slabs of data as well. Um, but we are just beginning to see the full dimensions of this, not just in terms of um, driverless vehicles, but also general production processes, um, as well as, as you said, drones and robots fighting wars um, from central casting somewhere. If uh, I'm thinking somewhat selfishly, what does that all mean for Australia? If you know, I don't know if we're well positioned to take advantage of all of these new developments, perhaps as as it depends US if you're a Carlton or Collingwood supporter, yeah. <laughs> really, you know, because that really defines where you are in life. And what your worldview is. 
Is Carlton good or bad? Uh, look, uh, I'm from the Australian politics, so I'm just not going to comment yeah. on that. <laughs> Smart move. It's a very polarising <laughs> question. And as a Queenslander, even I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> Um, I'm still flat out following the rules, actually, of the funny game you play <laughs> in the southern parts of the country. It's kind of fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not really designed for television, Australian football. You've got to be at the game. You've got yeah. Because the screen's, not, everything yeah, the screen's not big enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The screen is big enough for rugby, mm. but it's not big enough for Australian football. Yeah, so probably. I really enjoy Australian football when yeah. I'm at the ground, yeah. uh, as I've done many times down here in People's Republic of Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Lions aren't doing too bad this season either. Mm, so. Doing very well. Mm. Back to your question, which was? Uh, what does that mean for Australia in terms oh, yeah. of everyone else is growing? Where does that leave us? Uh, over the summer, I uh, got so angry about where our country was going, um, uh, sitting on the beach up in uh, bucolic Queensland, <clears throat> that I started writing a long essay uh, entitled The Complacent Country. Mm. It's 40,000 words. And uh, and I uh, I sent it off to a few folks to um, publish, but they thought it was too intellectual uh, to use um, Homer Simpson's favourite phrase. Um, I kind of like that. I want to be an intellectual. I kind of nodded as if I knew what it meant, but what does it mean? It's just Homer trying to pronounce the word intellect, oh. intellectual. <laughs> and then he uh, then he puts on his horn rim glasses, uh, half moon glasses backwards. You know. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Simpsons. <laughs> my kids used to call me Ned for quite a while. Oh, <laughs> After yeah, Ned Flanders. Stupid, stupid <laughs> sexy Flanders. <laughs> yeah, they thought that my, my choice of jumpers was right, right there with <laughs> the Ned Flanders benchmark. Anyway, uh, when I was writing this piece, uh, because I feel passionately about the country's future, and I think, uh, echoing earlier parts of our conversation today, the big decisions <clears throat> about where Australia needs to go long term on climate, on the diversification of our national economy, on national savings policy, on immigration, given demographic change and ageing of the population, as well as some th- things we should have done completely by now, including the completion of Indigenous reconciliation. Um, so I wrote this piece on the uh, complacent country. Um, And one of them deals with this failure to uh, act to diversify the Australian economy. And if you look at how uh, we can diversify the Australian economy beyond our classical reliance uh, on uh, carbon-based energy uh, plus other hard rocks in the ground, and I don't despise uh, the mining industry at all. Uh, It's been a generator of enormous wealth in Australia, but... Just as the mining revolution replaced the pastoral uh, industry as the driver of Australian economic growth, if you look at the full span of economic history, so too must the technology revolution be the next one that we fully embrace. That's why I sought to roll out high-speed broadband to the entire country until it was sabotaged by Murdoch and the Conservatives uh, for Foxtel commercial-related reasons. They didn't want Netflix as direct competitors back then. Um, But it was not just to roll out uh, broadband as if it was the solution for anything. But unless you had 100 megabits per second to every household and every small business in the country with a platform to engage a global market simultaneously, whether you were making quality cheeses in Devonport or whether you were uh, designing state-of-the-art environmentally friendly 
uh, buildings for what goes up next in Shanghai and you want to whack your blueprints down the line immediately to the people who are using the blueprints on a Shanghai construction site through to people who move money in global financial markets, you needed the platform to do it. That's why I did it or tried to do it until the other mob sabotaged it. Um, but that was to provide a platform. The second part is... If you look at the core underlying strengths of the Australian economy where we could take it a lot further, two or three really strike me as big. One is our existing strengths in uh, biotechnology and biomedicine, where this country has remarkable primary research still, uh, often hanging on by its fingernails and through often large-scale investments by labour governments, state and federal, over a long period of time. Um, but if I look in Melbourne and what goes on uh, here in Sydney, at Garvin, in Brisbane, at um, the Translational uh, Research Institute, our ability to produce world breakthrough in uh, areas of medicine <clears throat> um, which are of massive uh, relevance to global markets is huge. And people pay a lot on global markets for quality uh, medical breakthroughs on the condition that we have sufficiently active venture capital markets in this country to back them in order to do it. So this is huge. The second one is, in my view, uh, agribusiness because we live in a wider region which is becoming increasingly challenged by food scarcity, particularly where food quality standards are at a premium. Um, and the third one, which I think is critical, given the enormous size of the funds management industry in this country, which is now $2.7 trillion, courtesy again of a Labor government initiative, um, uh, opposed uphill and down dale by successive conservative governments, including most recently trying to defer the uh, change from 9% to 12% superannuation guarantee level, which um, our government legislated. Uh, is that this should be a funds management industry which exports its services to the world. But the problem is you have so many corporates sitting in the Australian financial services industry who sit on their derrieres, comfortable with the amount of money flowing in the back door through the superannuation guarantee levy, as the Banking Royal Commission has demonstrated, and not realising that every other financial services business in the world to grow becomes global just doesn't hang out for its domestic product. So what are the three big drivers I see for our country's future, not, not excluding others? It's financial services industry, biotechnology and biomedicine, as well as uh, agribusiness. Do that together with the existing strengths in education and in tourism and the continuation of elements of the mining industry. Then I think, as we'd say in Queensland, you're cooking with gas. Yeah. That's good. So long as it's bio-friendly. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it is <laughs> the right kind of guess. It is a lot of hope because I was going to ask a question around that because I was interested to see your opinion, which you just answered, preempted my question. But it's, I know, looking around, if Australia's economy is mainly exports like coal and iron ore, and if we're really going to get to zero emissions, and if the whole goal of the Paris Agreement means we get there, what does that mean for Australia? And at the same time, we've got the second highest private debt in the whole world as well. So, put all that together, like where I think complacency is, is the right word. You see, Australians are actually hardworking. Mm. If you read the OECD data on the hours of uh, each week that Australian workers work, it's near the top. This is a hardworking country. 
but it is poorly served by the quality of our corporate leadership. Corporates listening to this will then start throwing bricks at their uh, radios. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Their wirelesses. Yeah. Their listening <laughs> devices for podcasts. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they'll yank out their uh, their uh, earplugs in disgust and say this is a massive socialist critique mm. of the quality of corporate Australia. Well, pigs' ass. Uh, I know a number of Australian corporates who are taking on global markets and in biomedicine. I met one in Los Angeles just the other day. And there are great examples of this occurring, but they are younger folk usually mm. who see the world as their natural market. But that is not the mainstream culture of corporate Australia, whose view of exports is to sell a bit of, um, you know, strawberry jam across Bass Strait to the Taswegians. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's more complex than that. So a revolution needs to occur in the Australian corporate mind, mm. which sees the world as its parish, not as something exotic and foreign that you visit once or twice, you know, on a bit of a, a bit of a gander. Uh, but uh, you just see it as a natural platform. That's, again, why I tried to lay out a national broadband network. So this would just become automatic and real for people mm. rather than foreign and exotic. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that came to, wish that came to fruition. Where do you think the, the change, any sort of large-scale change like that, needs to uh, come from? Obviously, the government's one part of it, media is one part of it, big corporations are one part of it, small businesses and the individual level. Who or how does this change need to be sort of driven to head in the right direction? I think probably at three or four levels. Um, one is, I think, from the ground up. People who listen to this podcast, for example. You know, if you're fed up with uh, the way in which mainstream politics has been conducted, then become active and change it. I mean, subscribe to the notion of what I describe as the, um, as the radical reforming centre of this country. Um, it's not abandoning the traditional Australian lifestyle. It's about carving out an intelligent future for ourselves. So I think as that voice becomes less, as it were, paralysed by dystopia and more uh, actively engaged either in mainstream political parties or beyond them, that's where it starts. The second is the political parties themselves. I mean, the factional bullshit in both parties, frankly, the mainstream ones, and the Green Party, um, uh, they love calling themselves the Greens as if they're sort of a a friendly environmental movement. I mean, they're just a political party like anybody else. So I call them the Green Party. Sorry, sorry, comrades. Um, uh, Is that... uh, is that rather than this rolling uh, internal focus on factional power, and I've been the victim of that within my own party, um, the bottom line is cause your respective visions for the nation to be couched clearly uh, and in understandable terms for the wider voting public about where you would take Australia from and to in a given period of time rather than just the rolling bullshit of internal politics and playing, as it were, the opinion polls to the politics of the lowest common denominator, you know, remain pure or hate Muslims, you know. It's kind of the um, the binary of Australian politics at the moment and this mindless game that's being played. And then for corporate Australia, another huge change agent, um, which lies dormant. If you're a young corporate leader in this country... Uh, with a passion for the world, that get in there, don't be intimidated uh, by these uh, guys, and they usually are guys, uh, who are, you know, um, stuck in their ways, take on the world as if it's, um, 
the economy next door to you. And, uh, and understand that you will fail a couple of times before you succeed and just see that as a badge of honour on the way through. That's kind of how it works. And if you're a young person thinking about going off to university, um, then don't get stuck in the compliance professions of law and accounting. Now, for God's sake, life exists beyond those two disciplines. I know your parents will tell you to go off and safely do a law degree and then to go and do an accounting degree and so that all blood will ultimately drain from your face <laughs> as you are sentenced to a lifeless future. Apologies to lawyers and accountants. And two so of why my... are you going to say engineers in that category? <laughs> well, engineers are actually much more creative. They actually build mm, shit. That's okay. right. And uh, whereas those two professions actually act as compliance agents mm. on stuff which other people do. They suck blood out. Part... <laughs> Seriously. And so many brainy kids in our country get sucked into those two compliance Definitely. professions rather than a culture which says, okay, you know, I've done a good general degree at university in, you know, history, economics, international relations or whatever else. And now I want to do my MBA equivalent. I want to go and build my own business. That's the culture we need uh, coming up for corporate Australia. And I think there's a final pillar in my uh, quadrilla. Um, <laughs> Is there four in a quadrilla? Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Quad. yeah. yeah. yeah must be four. And um, one, two, three, four. So for Queensland, <laughs> I'm just take my shoes off here. A bit, <laughs> bit more advanced mathematics. <clears throat> that way we get to 19 because we don't have every toe up there. Oh. The um, <laughs> Is uh, our universities and the education system. Mm. Uh, frankly, the revolution still needed in our school system. We undertook many reforms in the school system to make the performance of schools publicly transparent. Teachers' unions hated it. But frankly, we just wanted to cause parents and communities to know which schools were performing or not performing against basic literacy and numeracy standards. And secondly, um, uh, as a result of that, to remunerate our teachers better, but to do it on a performance basis so that, you know, uh, beyond a certain benchmark in salaries, that there is a decent uh, reward for effort which goes on out there. But through the universities, for the universities also to have a vision for where they want to take the country, not just their own faculties and departments, where they want to take the country. 43 universities in this country, and some of them are really good. Some of them are not. Uh, but it's a, it's a variable feast. Um, but so often, because you've had this draining of federal funding from them under the Conservatives, um, they've had to turn to basically foreign students to become their um, cross-subsidisation mechanism to stay institutionally alive. Their ability to focus on the large picture for the future uh, is limited um, and therefore uh, that needs to change so that our largest universities become partners in the nation's progress in all of its diversity. So what are the change agents for the future? Uh, you, the people listening to the podcast, getting off your dig and becoming active rather than just sipping coffee in Carlton. Um, <laughs> sorry, Carlton. I mean the suburb, not the football yeah. team. Um, corporate Australia, the political class, um, but also our principal institutions in the education sector. Nice. I think there's some big challenges there, but as you say, there's, there's but answers. The, but they're doable. Yeah, These definitely. things are doable. Um, and to punch through... The constant uh, repressive far-right culture of the Murdoch media, which uh, hangs over this nation like a pall, like a pall, 
so that if anyone stands up with an alternative point of view uh, about a vision for the nation, they are smashed down by Murdoch's media institutions and cut into a thousand small pieces, never to be seen again other than a biological experiment. Um, other than their favourite front-page conservative heroes. And you'll see them on the front page every day. But these are conservative heroes who are usually articulating the politics of reaction and the politics of uh, a bygone era uh, and often the politics of, shall I say, uh, hatred um, and fear. So removing that pall from our country um, so that we can as a nation uh, celebrate uh, and honour those who are trying to take the country forward, uh, providing opportunities for all Australians, but also in the world at large for Australians to have a view about their future that we are not just takers from the international community but we are contributors to how we can build a better and more sustainable world. That's doable too. Australians are very good and practical when it comes to global cooperation when given the chance. Uh, my experience of government, though, is you put your hand up to try and solve things at Copenhagen and put your hands to try and solve things at G20, have the audacity to seek a seat, a seat on the UN Security Council or to stop Japanese whaling through International Court of Justice. What's the refrain from the Murdoch media? Oh, you've got tabs on yourself, haven't you? you know, too big for your boots. Mm -hmm. uh, tall poppy. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a tall poppy which not only needs to be cut down, you need the flamethrower taken <laughs> flag into the entire property so we'll <laughs> eviscerate it forever and then throw salt on the soil <laughs> so that nothing will ever grow there again. Why? Yeah. Because we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too good. It's been uh, phenomenal to chat to you. We, uh, we'll start our slow arc around with our uh, two generic questions. As we as we mentioned, uh, we read a book every week and like to discuss our favourite books. Uh, what are some of your favourite books uh, and uh, maybe what would you recommend somebody read? I read a whole bunch of stuff um, and usually sort of quite eclectic. I read a bunch of histories. Like I've just finished a pretty good biography of Thomas Cranmer um, and uh, and uh, earlier than that, a biography of Thomas Cromwell. Because I'm fascinated by Tudor England, not just because of the blood, guts and gore, um, but uh, because many of us in this country come out of the Anglo-Celtic world. How did England become a modern nation-state and who were those who sought to frame it as such? So... Um, um, a recent, uh, and I've just had a mental blank about the author of the um, uh, biography of Thomas Cromwell, but it's a really, a really good one. Um, I'm reading a great book on China at the moment called The Souls of China. Uh, it's by um, an American or Canadian, I think, sinologist whose name is Ian Johnston, uh, who uh, has spent 20 or 30 years living in Beijing. And what he sought to do is to write effectively a social history from the ground up through his observations of uh, local religious groups across China, whether they are Buddhist, Taoist or Christian, and ask the question, what is animating the Chinese soul beyond the Marxism-Leninism of the ruling Chinese Communist Party? It's a fascinating read for those of you who have an interest in uh, questions of meaning and purpose in life uh, uh, and for whom materialism doesn't provide uh, every answer because that's as much the experience of modern China as it is of the modern West. So those two um, are two which come um, uh, across the uh, 
top of my current uh, list, um, but there are um, there be others as well. Mm. Then, of course, there's a third one. It's called the PM Years. Um, <laughs> it's written by a nerd uh, <laughs> with funny glasses. Uh, Rudd, I think his name is. And it's a uh, reflection on um, uh, a period in public office and the things we got right and things we got wrong. But most of those uh, policy areas remain germane uh, four or five years later as well. And on the broader question of why would you go into political life, Volume one of my book, which is uh, Not for the Faint-Hearted, it basically asks this question, why the F would anyone contemplate a career in public life? And that's why I thought it was useful to explore that in a single volume before getting onto the cut and thrust of what I then did. <laughs> and what's, uh, what's in, in store for the future? Will we ever see you back in, in politics in Australia, US, anywhere around the world? Or what's your grander vision and is there bigger and better things to, to come? Um, I'm a creature of public policy. Um, I've never really enjoyed politics for its own sake. That is, there's nothing... I, I am not attracted to politics as a blood sport. I mean, I've seen a lot of blood, mainly my own, um, and, uh, and I don't particularly like that. Mm aspect of it. Other people in the political process thrive for it and they just love acts of gratuitous violence, metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them physically. That's even, <laughs> that's, that's even worse when you get the combo, let me tell you. I could give you names afterwards. <laughs> Daenerys Thornborn. The, um, yeah. But you'll probably get def um, defamation actions against you. <laughs> um, so the question really for anyone interested in public policy is what's your platform? Is it formal politics? Uh, or is it uh, the Court of International Public Opinion? Um, is it working publicly or privately with governments around the world? So what am I now doing? Since I uh, left these fair shores and fled into political exile and uh, sought asylum in the United States of America, it was under the Obama administration. It was, it was still possible in those days. Um, I, uh, Harvard asked me to uh, work with them on US-China relations. So uh, things were starting to get a bit rattly even back then. 2014. And then the Asia Policy Institute in New York, which is a part of the Asia Society, which is a venerable Rockefeller institution uh, established in the 50s, designed to build bridges between America and Asia at the height of the Cold War. Uh, quite a progressive vision for the time. Uh, they've engaged me as their president, so what I do with our centres across the world, of which there are uh, about 14, um, and our mothership in New York, uh, as well as in Washington, is we work closely uh, with the Chinese and the US governments on US-China relations. Uh, we publish from time to time on the same um, because uh, there is an emerging view both in Beijing and Washington that these two countries are destined for war. I'm in the midst of uh, putting out a series of lectures at the moment called The Avoidable War because I happen to think it is avoidable. Bloody well hope so. I think we're, uh, the world will be pretty cooked if the amount of power both countries have got. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be um, uh, up a certain creek in a barbed wire canoe if that was the case. Um, and then the second one which is uh, important to me is uh, climate. And again, through the policy institute that I head, we do a lot of work with the uh, Chinese, uh, the Japanese, the South Koreans, um, at a policy level and prospectively with the Americans on further action uh, on global greenhouse gas mitigation. 
And I do that through my own uh, policy institute and, again, working with uh, folks in Washington, folks in Beijing, and given Delhi's carbon footprint, uh, the Indian government as well. Uh, for my sins, I'm also chair of a, another not-for-profit called um, the Global Partnership on Sanitation and Water for All. It's sustainable development goal number six about global poverty reduction. This is about ensuring you've got sanitation and clean water services to the one and a half billion people in the world who don't have it. My sons call me the Sultan of Shit um, <laughs> uh, because that's what I do. Uh, basically, how do you stop open defecation in the world because mm. it's a huge predictor of all other public health outcomes. So I, I'm doing that stuff um, and uh, to the extent that it's effective uh, or not, others will judge. So um, do I come back to these fair shores at some stage or another? I don't know. Just keep your mind open. That's kind of my view. So where you can add value uh, rather than just strutting and fretting your arrow upon the stage. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got a hell of a lot on your plate. So we sincerely appreciate uh, taking an hour of your time to speak to a couple of two young blokes. That was incredible. Jonesy yeah. and Ashto. Um, and I think you... How old are you both, by the way? 28 20, for me. And 26. 28 and 26. So what have you done with your lives so far? <laughs> frigging around? Or yeah, no, just starting out. I'm a structural engineer. Okay. Uh, and Sorry, I was quite positive about engineers. <laughs> you were. I didn't even know you were an engineer. When do you dress like an engineer? <laughs> this is probably the, as good as I'll ever get. I think. <laughs> <laughs> in 20 minutes, so you, you won't hey, Mr. Toash, what about you? I'm uh, in marketing. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Well, I wish, wish you guys well. Uh, keep trying to change the world, mm. the country uh, and uh, your community. Uh, and... And may those listening to the uh, podcast uh, simply take away a very simple proposition, which is for all the shit that's going on in the world, there are solutions. And to turn the solutions into reality requires organisation, effort, uh, and personal contribution and sacrifice. Mm. Nothing comes easy. Um, you know, politics generates secular stigmata. Are there you guys Roman Catholics? Uh, I am not, but I know what stigmata are. Yeah, yeah. Start. Quite, you're Illuminati, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> See, we, found, we found, found out quickly where he's from. <laughs> but, you know, it involves, you know, uh, pain and discomfort. And But you know something? It's worthwhile doing that because there's nothing more satisfying than seeing changes stick, uh, which actually matter for people for the long term. And um, that, uh, when you suck in your final breath, is what it's all about. I don't think, oh, you, I don't think you could have a better it. ending yeah. than, than that, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not much sucking in the breath after that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. Have you got time for a quick tune? Um, I play very badly. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? Uh, well, well, hit us with your best shot. Should we sing? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> what should we do? A bit of Mozart? Yeah, please.
Yeah. Yeah. I might get back to that. Thank you. Have fun with so much. Have fun with all this.